Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this episode from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. But I want to acknowledge that despite that, 60,000 years of wisdom continues, and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a personal responsibility to support reconciliation and justice. Part of this responsibility is to advocate for the rights of First Nations families, parents and children. And with that today, I speak with Liana Buchanan, the Commissioner from the Commission for Children and Young People, CCYP for short. Liana has a rich history working in human rights across community legal centres, human rights agencies, and in reviewing and giving oversight to a range of settings, including correctional settings. The CCYP has a really broad mandate uh, that we talked to in the episode, but as the name suggests, it's about giving voice to the rights and interests of children and young people. Today we spoke about what the CCYP does, how they approach uh, oversight of services such as child protection, what this means uh, and what this role means within the context of ongoing colonisation faced by First Nations people. And then finally, we discuss the importance of lived experience to regulatory oversight work, something that I should, uh, that I think should be built into many regulators practice. I hope you enjoy the episode. So please subscribe, rate the podcast. We're available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, or anywhere else you can find your reputable regulation podcasts. Much for, for being here today, Liana. Um, as you'd know, uh, the opening question that we ask everyone is um, why does regulation matter um, to you and why does it matter to your community? Um, good, good to be here, uh, Simon. Thanks for having me. And um, I guess for me, regulation generally matters because it's one of the important means by which we bring about change or we uh, stop practices, things that um, are, are bad for people. Uh, we change people's behaviour. Sometimes regulation is really important in terms of changing attitude. So as a broad concept, very broad, uh, regulation is pretty important to me. In terms of the, the area in which I work uh, and the people for whom I work, children and young people, I'll talk about it in two ways. So. Um, some of our work at the Commission for Children uh, is about stopping abuse in organisations, abuse of kids in organisations. Uh, and so that applies really to all children. Any child who engages with an organisation, whether it's a kinder or school or your kind of local footy club or indeed uh, a church. And when you think about the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse and the Betrayal of Trust Inquiry here, we've got so much evidence that abuse of children in some of those organisations has been prevalent, has been devastating in terms of the impact on its victims and has often been 
concealed, uh, sometimes because of poor practice and sometimes intentionally to protect um, uh, organisations or indeed to protect adults. So in that context, for me, regulation, and we run the Child Safe Standards and Reportable Conduct Schemes, regulation is really important because if we don't have the schemes in place, we're not going to see the change to practice and to culture and to attitude that are needed to keep children safe. And to be blunt, we'll see history continue. We still see at the Commission a, a, a remarkable number of cases involving uh, abuse of children in organisations. If we don't have effective regulation, mm. then we're going to see that continue. So that's, that's one area of our work that affects, frankly, all children uh, and young people. The other area of uh, our work that I'll talk about probably a bit more today is the work that we do to regulate responses to children who are involved with child protection or who are in the out-of-home care system or in, who are in youth justice. Um, now, I would say generally children, depending on how old they are and their circumstances, have very little power uh, in their lives, in our community. I think we've had concepts of children's rights for a long time. We've been a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of the Child for 30 years now, but I don't think we have a particularly strong concept as a community of children uh, and children's rights and children as rights bearers. I see often we, um, we, there's real uh, remnants of children uh, as almost a concept of children as property, uh, certainly not children as beings with agency and a whole lot of capability and uh, rights that they can uh, assert. So if you think that that's true, uh, if you're prepared to contemplate that for all children, and then you look at children who are in out-of-home care or who are in families where there's a lot of issues and they're really doing it tough or children who are in youth justice, those children uh, have to be amongst the most disempowered in our community. So in that context, regulation of how we and ultimately government treats those children is incredibly important. We have a situation here for kids in care and for kids in youth justice where the state has stepped in with court approval and has assumed control over these children's lives. In the case of children in care, the state has stepped in uh, as parent. Uh, in the case of children in youth justice, the state has control of every aspect about those children's day-to-day -day lives whilst they're in youth justice. So I really can't think of any more important uh, a setting for there to be some independent scrutiny, some independent monitoring, some independent regulation about what's happening for those children uh, and how they're treated. So for me, regulation can be a really important aspect of trying to address um, power imbalance and trying to make sure that we're doing the right thing uh, by some of the most marginalised and disempowered people in our community. I mean, what a powerful opening and framing for why this is important. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, power imbalances um, and I, I'll admit I've already gone off track and I have to ask you a follow-up question, Liana, um, so my apologies. Um, I think that that's an area that needs um, more awareness across the whole regulatory field is um, power imbalances and what the role is of a regulator to, to re identify and redress that within a framework where they're meant to be quote unquote neutral or objective. Um, 
I don't know where where does your mind go to when, when I when I provoke that? I think um, uh, and so it's probably easier for me to kind of answer that when I think of our um, our work in child safe standards and reportable conduct, which is the kind of the work that we see as our strict regulatory schemes. And um, because I, in a way, I'm going to answer it in that way because in a way, I think our work regulating for children in care and youth justice is more explicitly about uh, addressing power imbalance. So that's kind of overt. Whereas in our other work with child safe standards and reportable conduct, we are indeed very clear, our, our, our legislative functions very clearly require us to be the objective, unbiased regulator, albeit administering a scheme that is ultimately for children. When I look at that, some of that is still at its heart about trying to address power imbalance, again, because we're talking about children and, and adults and organisations. So against a backdrop where adult views, adult experiences, uh, adult evidence has been given priority, has been listened to and, and, and heard and believed mm. in a way that children's have not. So, so the very existence of these schemes in a way is in part about addressing uh, power imbalance. But also then as a regulator, again, whether I think about child safe standards or about reportable conduct, it's absolutely part of our work to understand that there are differences in power and differences of experience between children. And part of our work in both of those schemes is about supporting organisations to make sure that they take that into account so that they are not further marginalising children who are already experiencing disadvantage or discrimination um, and indeed the way that they're approaching their work with those children and if those children experience some kind of harm or have a complaint they're experiencing that engagement in a way that itself addresses um, power imbalance so for me um, uh, this might say more about me than anything else but I, I, I can't imagine how we would operate as a regulatory body without building in an understanding of that and, and uh, the knowledge that we've got to support organisations to, to, to address power imbalance, for me, it's part and parcel of, of what we do. I don't think we could remove it. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and and you've, you've already uh, started to outline your role there as um, a Commissioner for Children and Young People. Is there, is there more to add there or could you give an over, uh, sort of general overview of, of, of what you, you do to serve the community? Yeah, certainly. So we're an independent statutory body. We've been around in our current uh, fully independent form since 2013. Um, I've already talked about our most recent functions, which are um, uh, administering the child safe standards. So we work with about 60,000 uh, organisations who are all required to implement the child safe standards. And we run a reportable conduct scheme, which effectively means that we oversee the way uh, allegations of abuse are investigated to make sure that they're dealt with properly. Um, our other, so I talk about our functions in kind of three categories. Those are uh, the first. The second um, uh, is really a very broad function to advocate uh, for children and young people uh, and try and advise government to improve services and policies and laws as they affect children and young people. And uh, we do that in a whole raft of ways you can imagine from formal submissions to kind of direct engagement with government, feeding into inquiries and, and so on. And then the third kind of category of our function uh, is the, 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 the category that relates to us trying to scrutinise and make sure that um, there's accountability for 
the way we treat children involved with child protection, children in care and children in youth justice. And it might be helpful for me just to give you a bit of an idea about how we do that um, without giving you too much detail. Um, but in a very kind of practical way, uh, we, uh, for example, receive the reports of every serious incident, both in youth justice and involving a children in out-of-home care. And we review those in, in the youth justice context because uh, youth justice centres have footage. It means that if there's a, uh, a, an incident where use of force has been applied, um, then we can review the footage and kind of form a view about whether we think there's anything concerning in it. Um, that's just one example. Uh, in the out-of-home care context, we can monitor to see whether there are particular children that we think we might need to kind of step in and uh, ask some questions about, or indeed whether we see uh, trends or themes that we need to raise. Um, in youth justice, we have an independent visitor program. So we have community visitors from a whole range of backgrounds, and they, when COVID is not uh, happening, go into the centres uh, and really kind of make sure between them that they uh, speak with or engage with all of the young people uh, in the centres. Um, and the idea of that is partly so that complaints can be raised, but also so that um, we and I as commissioner get a community perspective on what's happening in the centres, uh, as well as hearing uh, what's happening uh, from children and young people, because I, I don't have the capacity to get out that often and hear from every single young person. So that's a really valuable uh, function. We have something that's a bit different uh, in place in terms of inspections of residential care units, uh, and um, regularly we'll choose a sample of residential care units uh, and our staff, a team of staff will go in and try and engage with the young people. We'll usually have a focus on one aspect of uh, their rights in care. And again, it's just a way of us kind of testing, sampling what's happening for children in those, uh, in those settings. We also have the power to conduct inquiries. So those might be inquiries looking at an individual child or young person's experience. Uh, and indeed, we are required under law to look at the situation whenever a child dies who's been involved with child protection, we're required to go back and look at that child's experience and the services that they received and didn't receive, uh, and we use that to try and identify improvements. But we also might pick up other cases where we're particularly worried about what's happened and we think that there might be some systemic kind of improvement that we can identify by looking uh, at a situation, and so we can conduct an individual inquiry. And then finally, uh, and these are some of the work that probably is better known because we can make these inquiries public, we can initiate systemic inquiries. So that's really where there's uh, an area or um, a type of service or a number of children and young people for whom we see that there may be a systemic issue or concern and we can look at that, inquire into it and then make some recommendations and table those um, uh, ultimately in Parliament. So those are the ways that we perform our oversight function at the moment. Enormous, enormous. Um, I, I think um, uh, it's just hearing you list through the, those number of functions. Um, I imagine it's hard to, to know how to prioritise um, uh, you know, where to put your efforts. And um, I think um, at least you, you've been in the role for quite some time. So I imagine um, you've, you've built up that um, and you probably already had it anyway. But um, that, that wisdom about where to know, where to strike or where to put your efforts in um, at the right times. Is that, a, is that a constant challenge to, to, to the office and 
Yeah. There's there's no question, and if you even if you kind of think about it, and I think um, uh, different uh, equivalent offices and organisations to to the commission deal with this this a bit differently. Um, uh, you know, around around the country and indeed around the world, but I have both a responsibility to try and um, understand what's happening for children and young people generally, and try and bring about improvements, as well as those very um, clear responsibilities in our legislation to understand what's happening for some of the most disadvantaged children. Our legislation calls them vulnerable. Um, yes, they're vulnerable often because of the circumstances that they're in rather than any inherent vulnerability. Um, so the decision about how to, how, how to kind of deploy your resources uh, when there's such scope for um, uh, work and improvement uh, across children and young people generally and for the children who are involved in those systems, um, they're hard decisions. And they were hard when I first came in and they continue to be uh, to be hard. In a way, um, COVID sharpened my focus on children and young people more broadly because uh, up until that point, I was fairly clear that based on what we see, a lot of our effort needed to continue to be on improving things for young people in youth justice and improving things uh, for, for you know, children and young people involved in child protection and in the care system. So we were doing a lot of our work uh, to try and bring about that change and still do and still need to. Um, but during COVID, it was really clear that the impacts of COVID and the restrictions and homeschooling and lack of visibility, um, that made a whole raft of children and young people who hadn't previously been experiencing disadvantage um, or hardship or vulnerability, it brought a whole lot more into that category. And so we really, uh, during COVID over the last two years, have tried to um, get some kind of balance between the work we're doing on children and young people in care and our monitoring of what, what's happening in youth justice, as well as really broadening out to try and understand and then advocate about what's what's impacting children and young people more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a, um, yeah, it's the, unintended isn't the right way to put it, unanticipated impacts of, of COVID. Um, and um, that's that's a great example of one. And, and I just picking up on your um, use of the term vulnerable, I, I actually now reflect, I think that's the first time I um, I saw you speak um, was in a meeting I worked I won't name the workplace but somebody said um, vulnerable people and I think you said oh I take a different approach on that language so it's funny you said that because it prompted my memory um, I won't go down that that pathway because I uh, I'm already behind time uh, I, I was really interested in talking with you um, because from afar in all those different meetings and all the public settings that I've seen you speak it, it seems like uh, you and the, the commission take a really robust and um, sophisticated approach to your regulation and oversight. Um, and and I, know that, I note that you're going to talk a bit more about the oversight functions. You know, your website, it, it says that you take a, a collaborative risk and graduated approach to, to regulation. I mean, what a lot of people won't know what those things um, mean. Um, what does it look like in practice? Yeah. Um, uh, good question. And um, it's interesting because I think the document that you've kind of tapped into there was actually a document and a description of our approach that we prepared for our um, reportable conduct and child safe standards work. But actually, when I stopped to think about it before we spoke, I thought actually that it, it, 
these concepts apply equally to the way we go about our work uh, for children in child protection, out of home care and youth justice. Um, if you think about risk-based and kind of, you know, uh, uh, and, and focusing on what are the highest risk and most serious issues, in a way, that's the answer to the question that you asked me before, because you're, you're, you were exactly right. Um, we, we see issues uh, affecting children every day. We, from all the functions that uh, I just described and more broadly, we get information and data and intelligence about issues that are affecting children and young people. And so we have to have a basis on which we make decisions about what do we act on, what do we take up as an issue in some way or another, and what do we uh, what do we leave? What do we say? No, we just we can't do that. And and so we have to be driven by what are the issues that we're seeing uh, that are most serious, that are um, uh, pose highest risk to children, um, and we apply that really across all of our work. So I described before that we review uh, all of the incidents for children in out of home care and youth justice, and we you know we, we there are many of those. We can only act on a, a small number. So it has to be in part about, okay, which, which of these children, if any, seem to be really in need of some extra effort and attention by the department? Uh, or uh, what are the issues that we keep seeing recurring again and again, and they have significant negative impact on children and that we need to raise? And we need to raise either with the minister or the secretary or, uh, or whoever so that there's, uh, we, we get some change. Similarly, when I'm looking at the issues that we see through our child death inquiries or the issues that we're seeing through our other work, all of that intelligence has to inform our decisions about what will our next systemic inquiry be? What are the, what are the pieces of work that really warrant us um, finding the capacity, finding the resources and doing some of that really detailed work? So um, a risk-based approach is exactly kind of what guides our decisions about where we put our effort. For me, um, I think you mentioned the word robust and you're kind of very kind to describe it that way. But for me, um, us being a robust, credible body means that we've got to be very clearly evidence-based. We've got to not just give views that are based on my opinion uh, or on some ideas that we have in the commission. We have to um, have real rigour around the information and the evidence that we collect. A lot of what we're doing is trying to persuade either government directly or the world more broadly that there is a problem to be addressed and that it needs to be addressed and it needs to be addressed in particular ways. And so for that, gathering together the evidence is, is, is really important. Now, for us, um, a core part of the evidence is always what children and young people with lived experience say. So if we're looking at the youth justice system, that's almost the starting point, what the young people in youth justice describe. Similarly, when we look at what's the experience of children and young people in the care system, that's our starting point. We did a big inquiry on that. Our first piece of work was let's go and talk to, in that case, over 200 children and young people in care to understand what they say. And then we build on that. We look at the data, we review policies, we do file reviews, and we then you know, support uh, what we're saying and what children and young people have said uh, with that broader evidence base. So that's a big important part of how we how we go about our work. Um, the last uh, part of part of what we've described as our approach and that you referenced is collaborative. Um, and for me, that's very important again in all of our functions. But if I'm talking about our oversight and our work 
for children and young people in child protection care system and youth justice. I have a really um, strong view that if we can work in a way that is collaborative and constructive and directly kind of work with the significant decision makers, um, often that can be more impactful. Um, now that's not always possible, or it's not always possible to kind of persuade people. There can be a whole lot of barriers to that, but it is, in fact, it's not just my view, it's my experience that where I have with the regulated body, if you like, but with the department that's running a particular system, if I can have a robust uh, but open uh, and, and, and ultimately constructive relationship with that body, then we get a lot more change. Uh, now, uh, that's not always possible, as I say. There can be a whole lot of barriers uh, that prevent that. Uh, and so, you know, then uh, I think it's equally important to hold on to uh, the fact that we are an independent body and that there absolutely is a point in time whilst also working collaboratively while where we, 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 we call out what's happening or we call out issues or we kind of take a different position uh, publicly. That's equally important, I think. That's partly why you have an independent body uh, and some independent scrutiny. Uh, but that shouldn't, I don't think, shouldn't get in the way of having good, kind of robust, uh, but constructive relationships. So that's what collaboration is about for me. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, it's, um, I mean, when you, when you talk through that, that also reminds me of, I guess, you know, a responsive regulatory kind of framework too, where you, you try to use those relationships and means of, capacity education support the, uh, and whatnot um, as the kind of bread and butter but um, when that doesn't work you have to um, move your way up the up the regulatory pyramid and um, for our thousands of um, listeners they um, they'll remember we interviewed John Braithwaite earlier um, uh, and he is the, the father of the pyramids um, uh, he is he is and look and, and you're right so in you know in our child safe standards reportable conduct work we're very explicit that we kind of start with support to comply and we start and collaboration with the organisations we're regulating is incredibly important to that. And again, I would say my observation of how we work, for example, with organisations in reportable conduct, we work really closely with them to kind of give them guidance and support when they're starting to deal with the matter, they're starting to investigate. And that means that um, we're hopefully improving what they're doing for this investigation, but also if we're working well with them then they'll take on board our feedback and keep improving from there and that's that's what we've seen happen uh in terms of you know what the way that we work in those schemes we've only had to uh, i think uh, issue one of our more formal notices to comply in child safe standards so far that's you know as, as far as we've gone up the triangle uh if you like um uh but the fact that those more pointed enforcement mechanisms and sanctions are there is incredibly important because uh, there's no question there are some organisations, unfortunately, that still need uh, an understanding that those enforcement mechanisms are there uh, to prompt some of the uh, effort and change that they need to make. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, even that that single use of a of a I don't know if the terms compliance notice in your legislation, but yeah, the a compliance notice it does. Um, send a signal to, to other stakeholders that not to say that you're some demon who's going to come be an overlord, but let's work collaboratively because, you know, unfortunately there's these other steps that I'll have to take if we can't find resolution to the problem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I kind of say when I'm talking to um, bodies that we regulate, 
or, you know, or perhaps to other governments who are kind of considering a scheme like ours, I say we rarely need to use them, but just having them in the back pocket is really useful. And then other for, for some organisations, then knowing that we've got them in the back pocket is, um, is, is quite impactful. Absolutely. And I guess one of those areas that you work in and you've spoken about is uh, child protection. And there's quite, you know, um, from, from my observation, quite divergent kind of perspectives. And, you know, in child protection practitioners um, often state that they're overworked and under-resourced, which is reflected in, I guess you'd say, time-pressured decisions. Um, when we hear from children and young people and, um, and, and even parents, I guess, um, they talk of being oppressed and, and marginalised by these systems. You know, this is particularly compounded um, for Aboriginal Victorians uh, who, live, um, who live with colonisation as an ongoing process. How do you as a regulator hold these perspectives? Do you, do you treat them equally or do you find that you need to take special efforts or measures to highlight some of the more marginalised voices in the conversation? So, I mean, what I might start by saying, I will answer your question directly, but I'm going to kind of start by saying in this example that you, you know, that you've kind of pointed out, I actually think it is possible, not always, it's not always the case, but in this example, it's possible that um, all the perspectives that you mentioned uh, are true and, in fact, all are relevant. Um, our child protection and care systems are overstretched. There is a kind of reality for workers that their caseloads are very high. We know there's significant staff turnover. Um, they're kind of uh, already important and tough jobs that require a lot of skill and judgment. And the people in them are often sometimes kind of finding it very difficult to do what they know needs to be done because of issues about the system and the way it works, right? So um, that is part of the picture. I, I kind of honestly believe that. Um, partly because of some of those factors, uh, but maybe not completely exclusively, uh, it's also the case that children in the system, and I'll speak more about children and young people than parents because I have contact with children and young people uh, predominantly. Um, so it's also the case that children in the system uh, very often do feel uh, marginalised, they absolutely feel that they don't have a say uh, on what happens. I mean, when, when we look at um, child protection practice, and we do this in a whole range of ways, including through our child death inquiry function, and we look even at whether children are engaged directly at the point that uh, practitioners are assessing risks. So there's been a report, there's an assessment about what's happening in a family and what's happening to a child. We often see cases, very often, where the child or children aren't asked directly, uh, including, you know, older children, but uh, all, all ages. Um, so, and I have to say, uh, some of the consequence of that is that we see situations where um, uh, children remain uh, with no support and no intervention uh, for a long time, despite multiple, multiple, multiple reports. And that's part of what's playing out uh, in, in those cases. When you look at children in the care system, and I mentioned before in 2019, end of 2019, we tabled um, a, a big report looking at children's experience in the care system. We spoke to um, a lot of children and young people uh, for that. And what we heard overwhelmingly 
was that they feel really that they have no say. That once they're in the care system, decisions are being made about every aspect of their lives, who they live with, what area they live with, live in, uh, where they'll go to school, uh, what friends they can see or stay over with and not. Um, all of those decisions are being made for them and they feel that they have very little say. There's, there's a whole lot of policy in place to kind of say, uh, that children should be involved and should have a say and should participate in those decisions for a whole lot of reasons, including pressure on the system, but also perhaps a, a bit of uh, a lack of cultural focus for lots of reasons that, that that isn't happening. Children describe to us again and again for that inquiry that, for example, when they're moving placement, so one of the biggest things that can happen to anybody, child or otherwise, is that they have to move house and move with whom they live that often not only do they not get a say in that, but they're not even giving, given an, an explanation. So they'll be moved and they're left wondering why. So you kind of can't imagine much more that is disempowering and that makes you feel like you don't have a say in what's going on for you than that kind of experience. So um, uh, what you're describing about pressures and problems for the workforce uh, and the significant impact of the system as it currently operates on children, both are, are absolutely true. Similarly, when you kind of draw attention to what happens for Aboriginal children uh, and young people, um, uh, again, some of those issues are compounded um, uh, even more. Uh, I do think one of the benefits that I as a commissioner and that we as the commission in Victoria have is that we've had for some years now a commissioner for Aboriginal children and young people we were the first uh, commission, Children's Commission, to have that role. That has enabled um, uh, a very kind of clear focus on the voice and experiences of Aboriginal children, which we have as a commission anyway, but that leadership position absolutely has strengthened that uh, and allowed, uh, enabled the commission to kind of do that in a, in, a, in a more meaningful way. And I think that's important when you look at uh, as you refer to the impact of colonisation, and we see that impact uh, in the over-representation of Aboriginal children and young people in youth justice, and the massive over-representation of Aboriginal children being taken into care, that impact of colonisation, and then again, the relative kind of power imbalance uh, and power issues at play are really significant. So we have to have ways to understand what is happening in Aboriginal families, for Aboriginal children and then what's happening in the system for those children. Uh, and that has to be a perspective that's taken into account. So to come back to your question, uh, are all views treated uh, equally? Um, I think they're all relevant. I think you need to understand all the different perspectives, even if you don't agree with them. And sometimes you can agree with most of them to a degree, you know, in, in one way or another. But even if you don't, you need to understand them. You need to assess all the different perspectives. Um, uh, but, but at the end of the day, in some re respects, a job like mine is quite clear because I am ultimately not the commissioner for particular workforce sectors. I'm the commissioner for children and young people. So ultimately, whilst I need to understand everyone's views and while I personally think a better system for children is a better system to work in, uh, ultimately, my kind of my overriding objective is in the legislation, I've got to be prioritising what's going to be better for children and young people. Oh, yeah, I'm so stoked to hear that. I'm sure a lot of young people, um, I don't know, do young people still say stoked? I don't, you'd know better than me. Is that, 
I've right. got to say, I'm not sure that I've heard yeah. them say that. Yeah. <laughs> I say it. For what it's worth, I say it, but no. <laughs> That's good. Not, the not local Someone called me King the other day, and I was like, I don't even know what that means. Um, uh, so I think that's a good yeah. thing. I had I had drip. Like, no, that's drip. Oh, did <laughs> is it good? Is it bad? Very hard to keep up. Oh, anyway, gosh, we need to regulate speech. Um, uh, so no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, one of the privileges of this podcast um, has been to to talk with folk with lived experience of of the relevant issues. And I spoke to a young person who'd gone through a number of the systems that you talk about earlier this year, last year, COVID time. Um, and uh, they they just spoke about their, their life within those systems, certainly from what I took it as, as a complete regime of control, you know, and that um, just the surveillance system and, um, and, and there were systemic features to that problem. And, and that, that talks to, you know, it, it certainly talks to the under underfunding and whatnot that, that, that exists, in, it exists in these systems. But what certainly came through is, and you've touched on as well, is the, the, that people have personal responsibility as well within those systems. And that the ideas that people are operating on about children and young people are a key part of that problem and and that that's a systemic problem but it's also a personal responsibility to challenge those ideas and and that young people are property that was something that the young person spoke about um that they become erased from so many conversations like family violence um that that children and young people are um uh, are, are not seen as are they're seen as property or to the extent that they're spoken about there's very simple dichotomies of, of young children as not having the kind of complexity that we give adults um you know I, and so for me when i hear you say that you're um you, you assess all voices and perspectives but you really privilege those that are most marginalized i'm sure a lot of young people in the system would um yeah would would be feel warmth for that approach um, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, as I say, I think I, in a way, I think that's my job. Uh, <laughs> and frankly, I shouldn't be in the job unless I was clear about that. I think the point that you make about um, uh, lack of uh, engaging with children and hearing what they have to say and then acting on it, you're absolutely right to point out some of that is about workload and a pressured system, but it's not just about that. It is also absolutely cultural. And I think um, uh, uh, maybe some of that is, you know, is more kind of highlighted when someone like me comes in and looks at child protection practice. But it's not it's not unique um, uh, to that sector, to that kind of you know group of people in the community. I do think it is as you're describing. There's a kind of broader issue for us uh, as a society, really, that we need to grapple with how we see how we see children. And we need to kind of shift that perspective. So in a way, some of what I'm describing as, you know, as affects children in care, for instance, is a particularly kind of bad example of a much broader issue, uh, I think. But, but as I say, when uh, the state has stepped in and um, stepped in as the effective parent of a child and kind of assumed control over all the decisions about a child's life, um, that lack of uh, voice that lack of recognition of children as agents with rights to have a say um, that's pretty pointed absolutely and um, you know it's not you know you know obviously it's far deeper in, in this space but certainly in the space I work in it's 
it's not unique to um, the child protection system. I've worked in the mental health system and that kind of erasure of agency and identity and even subjectivity, which you think is ironic in a mental health system, occurs a lot. Um, and, and that's why there's a need for strong regulators in, in that space as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And as you mentioned, family violence, I mean, I've um, uh, spoken a lot and continue to see a lot that we, you know, again, the we, we including all of the agencies that work in family violence, all of the policymakers who work on family violence, um, and a lot of advocates, there is still a tendency to think of when people think of victims of family violence, they think of adult, adult women, uh, and they, they, you know, kind of children are either seen as, you know, a, an, an attachment, an extension of um, uh, their mother, or not seen at all. Uh, and, um, and, you know, the Royal Commission into Family Violence called out that that needed to change. What are we? Almost six years down the track, it still needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. You've reminded me, I'm going to repost the, uh, that young person's episode with this one as well to, to make sure we can elevate those voices. Yeah, um, one of the things that um, we, we've touched on, but I don't know if you have more to add is, you know, um, the tension between the, in that oversight um, role of the carrot and the stick in terms of positively reinforcing um, through that support and education, but also the naming and shaming. Um, is there, We've, you've, you've outlined that. Is there something that helps you strike a balance um, about when to do it? Is there, is there a, a thought process that goes through your mind about you're in the room you're, uh, you, you, and you're just not sure, you're, you're on the fence about which way to go? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. It's one of the aspects of this role that I, I, I find both intellectually kind of fascinating uh, and personally both fascinating and challenging um, because, I mean, the beauty of this role in some respects is that uh, there is flexibility, there is choice about which of the uh, approaches, which of the levers uh, I and we as a commission can use to bring about change. And there are a whole lot of factors uh, at play in that. There will be kind of factors about, for example, is this something that I think or uh, if I test it, that I feel that I'm getting uh, a reception from the relevant department or the relevant agency such that I think uh, direct engagement is going to be effective. And often, as I said before, it kind of goes with the collaboration piece. Often my view is if a direct approach uh, without necessarily running to the media, uh, if that is going to work, and means that I can kind of work um, uh, a bit more closely uh, with the, you know, the, the authorities, whoever it is, to bring about change. That in my experience, that's often pretty effective um, because you're you're around the table. You're around the table, and you're kind of working with uh, the kind of people responsible to try and bring about the change and work through some of the problems. There'll always be problems and barriers. So um, uh, if I can work that way, I will. Then uh, if I think about what kind of what influences my decision to take some uh, either escalated action in terms of kind of raising at a more senior level or taking some action that is um, more public, whether that's about speaking to the media or it's about uh, conducting a systemic inquiry that we can table. Um, really, the, the questions are, you know, again, about how serious an issue is it? What are the repercussions for children if we don't change this? 
is the is is the action I'm considering likely to bring about positive change, or is it likely to get uh, a you know a negative reaction such that the you know the kind of barricades go up uh, and things can get worse for children? So there's a whole lot of factors uh, uh, to consider, um, which. You know, and again, we have some, you can imagine, we have some <laughs> deeply kind of interesting conversations uh, within the Commission uh, about this. Ultimately, I do think that certainly in our work overseeing and monitoring responses to children in care and child protection and youth justice, really our most um, significant tool, if you like, is doing that kind of detailed examination of an issue and tabling uh, a report in Parliament, clearly for capacity reasons, we kind of have to choose that pretty carefully. So when I'm kind of making that decision, it is about what is an issue that is significantly negatively affecting a lot of people? Um, is it an issue that I feel the community needs to know more about? Is it an issue that actually government probably needs to know more about? Uh, and that, you know, we need to kind of find ways to build attention to the issue and to be blunt, sometimes a bit of pressure for change. So those are all factors that kind of play into the the decision. Yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of an art rather than a, a science, right? And I think it just highlights the, I think the the and and it's necessary, but the level of discretion that regulators like yourself are afforded to make those decisions, it just means that, um, and I'm sure it's not used to you. You just need to be comfortable that you've morally that you've made those right decisions and that you've um, done it in, in the I don't like to use the term best interest because it's very paternalistic but the best interests of, of children or in service of their rights and needs yeah mm. yeah I think that's right I think you do need to and this has been you know my experience you need to kind of have have a process that enables you at the end of the at the end of the day to feel absolutely comfortable with the decision you've made about the approach that you've taken uh, and know that it was made, as you say, only with uh, what's right for children and young people in mind, um, which doesn't mean you're always going to take a kind of really public uh, approach or you're going to kind of jump up and down uh, and be terribly stroppy and bolshy. Uh, uh, sometimes, in fact, that's that's not the best thing for children and young people, and you've got to be okay with those decisions, decisions as well. Um, but I think just being very clear in yourself that you're guided by the right reasons, the right motivations, um, you need you need to have that, otherwise, I think you'd really struggle in a, in in these kind of roles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I um, uh, you've got a lot of um, functions in your office. You've got um, uh, a lot to do. Are there things that are at the top of the um, regulatory or oversighty uh, 2022 list? Um, there are a few that I will mention. Um, in the regulatory child safe standards reportable conduct scheme uh, space, we've got some new child safe standards coming in in July. Uh, they kind of mirror or, or align uh, more closely than our current ones with the national child safety principles. Um, and they also have some really uh, strong new standards around improving cultural safety for Aboriginal children and young people. So there's, there's a, a lot of work that we're having to do on um, uh, the guidance and resources to support organisations to implement those new standards. Uh, we've got a review of the reportable conduct scheme that the government will, will will start or is just starting now. So that's kind of pretty big for us in terms of uh, uh, seeing how we can build on and strengthen the scheme going forward. In our work, um, uh, our kind of oversight and regulation of child protection out of home care youth justice space, 
Um, there's a few. There's a few pieces. One of the one of the things that we've been very acutely aware of and focused on in the past two years has been the impact of COVID and COVID-related restrictions on all children and young people, as I said before, but then on particularly um, uh, at-risk groups of children and young people. So we continue to monitor what COVID means for young people and youth justice. Um, there's a whole lot of ramifications for those young people when they have to go into quarantine on admission for two weeks, it means they're kind of in effective isolation for two weeks when they first go in, can't have in-person visits with family and so on. A lot of hard decisions, many of which have been necessary to make, but we'll be very closely monitoring what that looks like as we move into the next kind of phases of the pandemic, because that can't become the new normal uh, in youth justice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, and similarly, in child protection uh, space, I've been very conscious that with children being less visible, because they haven't been at school and they haven't been seeing extended family during lockdown periods and so on, and when services have had to restrict how much kind of face-to-face -face, um, contact they've had with people, uh, the risks for children and families have been pretty significant. So we'll, we've got, we'll, we'll continue to do a lot of monitoring of what we see in the data, what we understand is happening for children and young people in these different systems, trying to influence the way services and government responds as we move through. We have a couple of inquiries on the boil, a couple that relate to child protection practice in uh, different ways, one that relates to child protection's um, uh, responses to children with disability when they're in um, families uh, where there are issues. And then probably our um, next systemic inquiry that we're just coming back to, because uh, we had to delay it a bit because of COVID, is looking at uh, children in the out-of-home care system uh, and their experience with education. So when we did our 2019 inquiry, we had a lot from children mm. and young people about how hard it was to stay engaged with education, for all the reasons you can imagine and uh, possibly some you can't. Mm. Uh, so we want to have a focused look at that to see if we can make some sensible kind of good suggestions to how to improve that. Um, the last thing that I'd say, because it's um, it really will influence uh, all of our <coughs> all of our work at the commission, is we have a commission youth council with a number of young people uh, with lived experience of uh, uh, you know of a whole range of different systems and issues. They're incredibly uh, powerful, uh, smart, strategic bunch of young people. We also have a broader youth network. So you know, really on our agenda is to keep finding ways to involve those children and young people, and indeed children and young people generally, in all of our work, not just our inquiry work, not just our regulatory work, uh, every single kind of piece of work that we do at the Commission. Oh my gosh, I, I laughed halfway through that list because there's so many things that you um you're you're do you've already got on the to-do list for for this year. Um, so that's very impressive. But I'm I was most warmed by that that last um. Uh, that last activity that you're moving towards to create a council. I think that's really important, um, particularly um, because you would have so much contact with the system. Um, it's important to have a kind of, and, and, and you obviously already do have lots of contact with children and young people, but to have a, a sort of countervailing um, um, interest or um, uh constant voice to, to inform the office, I think is really important. Um, uh, I said, I've sat on some of those councils, not as a young person, because that was a long time ago, but um, I, I definitely see their value. Um, mm -hmm. 
you've given us an incredible account of um, all of the work that you, you and your office are doing. The regulatory and oversight kind of approach that you take to that in terms of how you build relationships, how you, um, I guess, move up that regulatory pyramid when necessary and, and how you sort of go through that decision-making process in your own mind. We've put that within the context of, you know, um, for example, child protection systems and people's experiences of colonisation and how you would respond to that. Uh, and now we have a, a, a very full agenda of the 2022 um, to-do list. What's one thing, now you can create a to-do list for the, for the audience. What's the one thing that you want them to do after hearing you today? So I'm conscious I'm going to be talking, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, talking right now to people in all different kinds of jobs and family situations and places in their lives. So uh, I'm going to go back to what we've touched on a few times, Simon, which is, you know, the issue around how we see children uh, in our society generally and the need to kind of shift that at every level. So uh, if you're listening to this, Google Convention on the Rights of the Child maybe the UNICEF child-friendly version because it's really simple and easy to read, have a look at what have we as a country and many countries around the world, what have we already signed up to to say here are children's rights, here are the range of things that children are entitled to and carry that with you. Have a bit of a think about how do you reckon we, we do? How, how, how real do we make these rights? for some children, for all children, and carry some of that with you in the way that you see children, the way you might work with children, the way you um, uh, describe children, the, the way you build them in uh, to whatever work you're involved in. Uh, because I think some of the changes that we need are at that kind of very simple on, on, in one way, but kind of um, deep uh, cultural level. Uh, and if we get more people thinking about children in a different way and then encouraging others to do it, uh, including encouraging government to think and see differently, uh, children differently, then, you know, then, we'll, then we'll, see, we'll see some change. We'll make sure to um, include that in the show notes and um, in our social media, we'll try to include that content. That's a wonderful way to leave it, that, that a human rights framework is a, is a really important way to, to shape how we understand people and, and the rights they should have when they move through the world. Um, Liana, thanks so much for talking with me today. I feel really privileged. No, no, thank, thanks, Simon. Um, thank, thanks for your time and your interest. I appreciate it. <laughs>